All right, welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. Tonight, I'm with Janelle, Elizabeth, Monica, and we're here with Dr. David Bouchard from Denver Seminary, Professor of Theology and Historical Studies, also the Associate Dean. Good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. And before we get going tonight, just if you're out there in the internet world and you stumbled upon the Brew Theology Podcast, we, this is like our microcosm of what we do every week at the pub. So we do this on Thursday nights. We have groups across the nation. Tonight, in fact, Atlanta is starting their first gathering in Roswell. Yeah, we've got New Jersey groups. Uh, I'm not going to remember you all. I love you all. And uh, thanks for listening. If you're on social media, go to Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, at Brew Theology, Facebook and Instagram. And then there's a website, which is BrewTheology.org. Yeah, and you can figure out if you're like, hey, I like these guys. I want to partner with them. And it doesn't matter what denomination you are, you know, you don't have to sign a statement of faith, which is kind of nice. You can just, hey, there you go, click that button and email us. So uh, tonight we are talking about evangelicalism and will the real evangelicals stand up? Please stand up, I should say. We have a few ex-evangelicals around the table. We'll introduce ourselves briefly in a second. Uh, but before we, we kind of do that, I, I will say, I mean, you guys know my story. Some of you grew up Southern Baptist evangelical, so... When Dr. David Bouchard here, who was one of my professors about 17, 18 years ago at Denver Seminary. You're old. I know, I'm old. It's, it's happening. I'm feeling it now. And uh, this, this specific topic, um, he had presented some, some other topics. And, and I said, this is the one we got to do. And I, <laughs> which I don't know how you felt about that. But I knew instantly, first reason, it's a personal reason. It's my heritage. Those around the table, it's your heritage, too. I grew up in this from uh, the cradle, preschool, elementary. I got my college and ministry licensing and even seminary through an evangelical institution. I worked, worked in evangelical churches. And so I spend a lot of time now talking with a lot of uh, non-evangelicals, people who have no real concept of it at all. And I'm apologizing a lot or defending them <laughs> a lot because as my mm. mom told me once, Ryan, we're not all like that. And I, and I will agree. So tonight we'll dig into the, I'm, we're not all like that with Dr. Bashart. And um, the other reason is it's just a hot topic and we'll get into that later, I would assume. So uh, I, as we introduce ourselves, let's do this. In, say your name. And then the, the question that, uh, that David had was, when you hear the word evangelical, what words come to mind? So let's just go raw first. So then he can be the ap apologetic one and, <laughs> and start that way. Is that okay? Can we do that? Uh -huh. Let's do it. Okay, I'm Janelle, and uh, what, when I hear that word in today's context, I want to be as far away from it as possible in how people identify with me. I'm Elizabeth, and um, I'll give you background. I was raised fundamentalist. I kind of rebelled by becoming an evangelical in my early 20s, which I'm not anymore. And the first words that come to mind, and I apologize that these are harsh, is homophobic, um, often racist, anti-science. Hi, I'm Monica. I'll do some warm and fuzzies to make up for everybody else. I think of family, fellowship, also judgment, um, and hell. And I have to get sexism in there and patriarchy and misogyny. Yeah, I think of complementarianism. Oh, yeah. And Ew. it really Piper. Ugh, gets me sad. 
Yeah, so those are some interesting adjectives. So uh, we ready to dive in? You ready? Sure. Okay, sure. so when you hear the word evangelical, what comes to your mind? <clears throat> yeah, I, I, that's a good question since I posed the question last week. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, it doesn't work well for me because I'm, I use the term so much. Um, word associations, you know, that, that quick first thought. I, I suppose at a very personal level, I have a sense of identification with it. I, to, to use the, the language of tribe, I think, well, that's, that's my tribe, which doesn't mean I like everybody in the tribe. Uh, but yeah, it, it is, it's the stream, the substream within Christianity that I know it has been kind of my, my, uh, what, what would you say, kind of tether point for most of my life. Yeah, I think I have finally come to a place where, well, I realize the stereotypical cultural, especially mass media uh, word evangelical, and I can go on any public thread and on Twitter and I can back up that it's like, oh, it's awful, make me vomit. However, I think I know enough evangelicals and having been somebody who used to identify as that label and worked and still, I'm still doing ministry actually in partnership with evangelicals. So, uh, I will say what my mom told me years ago. We're not all like that. And so can, can, you, uh, can you do a little apologetic from Trump America to we're not all like that? Uh, can you make that jump? Uh, by apologetic, you mean kind of de- defend, if you will, yeah. evangelicals? D- yeah, let, let's defend them, and then, uh, <clears throat> and then we can go back historically to, to see the okay. roots of— because yeah. a lot of people may, may have no idea where it's even come from. I, so I think—let uh, me, uh, if I can— I'll do it here, which is to make two kind of prefatory comments. Um, one is that for myself and most of the people I know who may self-identify as evangelical, uh, it is not the most important descriptor about us. So on the one hand, I, I don't, in my case... If I have the opportunity to explain what I mean by evangelical and what I don't mean, I'm happy to be self-identified as an evangelical. Um, That said, I don't find it to be the first thing that comes to my mind or the most important thing that comes to my mind. So so first of all, just to keep it, if you will, in perspective, we're going to Around the table tonight, we'll probably say the word 100 or 200, 300 times, but it's not the most important descriptor, I don't think. I need to know if it's evangelical or evangelical, because now I'm questioning myself. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that if you're a philosopher, you say Augustine, and if you're a theologian, you say Augustine. But on, on the word... Ev- <laughs> Evangelical, evangelical, um, as in many things with evangelicalism, take your pick. Um, So not the most important. And the second one is, and I think this is really important because even though tonight, uh, at least at the outset, we're focusing on evangelicalism, um, is to recognize that it is not uh, comprehensive of Christianity. In other words, 
evangelical is not a synonym for Christianity. Are there some people within evangelicalism who have a very difficult time conceiving of Christianity in any other form? Yes, but (laughs) properly understood, rightly understood, the way most people I work with use it, they would not say to be, ev- to be a Christian is to be an evangelical. There's Eastern Orthodoxy, there's Roman Catholicism, there's many, many streams of Protestant Christianity. So just those two, I, I think, uh, important kind of qualifiers. Yeah, and you, you talked about language, too, at the pub last week and how the word evangelical can mean one thing in one era, and, mm-hmm. and now we're, we're mm-hmm. moving into a new era where it's become, yeah. uh, it's almost become a bad word in, in a lot Not of... Not almost. In, in, uh, yeah. In a, like a, a metro city like Denver, sure. for instance. Well, when, yeah. you, when you asked, uh, you, know, you invited me to send you several possible topics. I mean... Six, eight years ago, I suspect I wouldn't have, I don't know that I would have even proposed this on the list. So uh, the the reason that I included it among the possibilities is frankly what's what's gone on over the last give or take two years and what continues today. I mean, I continued just since we were together last, was it Thursday? We're Thursday night. you know, every day I've gotten various kinds of items in my inbox. Uh, most, much of it stirred up around the election. Um, the whole question of what it means to be an evangelical, what it doesn't mean to be an evangelical, who they are, has, if you will, once again been stirred up, so to speak. Yeah, so I don't know about you all, but I love history, and I know that that's one of your your go tos as well as you mm-hmm. teach theology and historical studies. Mm-hmm. So, church history, can you take us back to the Reformation and give us a very uh, Cliff Notes version Cliff of Notes that? Version. Five hundred Mo- years in five minutes. <laughs> moving, <laughs> moving to the you know eighteenth century, nineteenth century revivals in America, yeah. and then we'll get to the the twentieth century because I think that's where we're going to end up. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to push it back one notch farther, uh, and again, to kind of locate evangelical Christianity within the larger story of Christianity, and that is that all Christian traditions of whatever sort all uh, want to be able to trace their lineage back to Jesus and the apostles. It doesn't matter whether you're Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Wesleyan, Baptist, go down the list, rightly, it's called Christianity. And so every tradition of Christianity, when they look back into history, eventually will write the history so that they end up back with Jesus and the apostles. Um, So that's kind of the storyline of all streams of Christianity. That said, once we move out from that earliest era, in different traditions, different points in time are of particular significance. Um, it's not that the years in between don't matter, but every tradition has their own kind of particularly significant points. And uh, I think that in the case of evangelicalism, the, the two where people tend to identify the, if you will, the start 
of the evangelical tradition are typically either the 16th century or the 18th century. So there are some evangelicals who would say evangelicalism was birthed, if you will, in the context of the Protestant reformations, as they're called, in the 16th century. And that is when the the German predecessor to the English word evangelical was first used. Uh, Evangelich, German word, was was synonymous not with some subgroup within evangelicalism, but basically Protestants. And over time, the word um, as Protestantism diversified, um, that word evangelical uh, no longer came to be inclusive of all of Protestantism, but came to be more associated with particular substreams, you could say, within Protestantism. But so 16th century is the origin. And, and by the way, the, many of the people who are the most reluctant in the current discussions to give up the term are reluctant to give it up because of that historical reference point. And they say, here's what it means. It's associated with Protestant, the birth of Protestantism in the, in the 16th century. The, the second kind of originating point that some people point to are the uh, revivals, as they're called, uh, in, particularly in uh, America, the American revivals, uh, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. And uh, that is another point that people will point to. And some people would actually say that really is the birth of what we know today as evangelicalism, is those 18th century um, revivals. And, and somewhere down the road here, if we want, we can talk about, in a sense, what each of those originating points kind of contributed to the character of what we today call evangelicalism. But I, I won't go there right now. Um, and then two other reference historical points, and then we can go on from there. One, one is the early 20th century, the so-called modernist fundamentalist controversy, as it's usually described. And again, what, what most people view as kind of modern evangelicalism was birthed out of that controversy uh, by a group of people, some of the names associated with that post-World War II, as it's sometimes called, uh, emergence of evangelicalism. Carl F.H. Henry, who was a philosopher, a theologian. Uh, Harold J. Ockengay, who was pastor of a very prominent church in Boston, um, would be just two names associated with that. And these were people who looked at that modernist fundamentalist controversy and theologically had a great deal in common with the so-called fundamentalists in terms of just basic doctrinal beliefs. However, they profoundly disagreed with the fundamentalist posture of withdrawal from society, the fundamentalist impulse to separation and basically opposition to anything within the society at large. And it was largely prompted by a reaction against that part of fundamentalism that what was initially called 
neo-evangelicalism, and shortly the neo dropped off, and we have what people began to talk about as evangelicalism. Um, so that's probably enough, at least for now. That's a great summation. I, I don't think I need to take notes from you, because to get something that, that's a lot of history, and I think you could do that in maybe less than five minutes. So do y'all have any other like follow-up questions with certain eras at that time? Because I know there's a lot of history packed into that. The early fundamentalist controversy, did some yes. of that stem out of the work of Walter Rausenbusch? Uh, I, I asked that because that he was one of the people we read that was right at the turn of the century. Sure. And he, if I remember right, used the word fundamentalist or even or evangelical, I can't remember. Mm, and mm. then it kind of became this this debate or playoff of, well, he's too social justicey. We don't want to be like that. <laughs> but then they're yeah. still using the same terminology later right. on. I so I, I think it's perfectly appropriate to raise Rauschenbusch's name, um, and uh, Rauschenbusch's name is usually synonymous what's called with what's called the social gospel movement. Okay. That's, that's the particular descriptor. But but I would say that um, again, while social while the social gospel movement is not synonymous with liberal theology. It is certainly associated with liberal okay. theology, and and let me use the word liberal here. This is liberal as I'm using it now, with a with a capital L, an uppercase L, uh, not being used as some kind of a negative descriptor, but simply an attempt, which historians have to do all the time. We have to we label things, we we coin terms to to capture movements or, or clusters of ideas. And in the case of this, um, what, what was regarded by the fundamentalists as what's called liberal theology coming to the North America largely out of Germany, so European influence. And of course, Rauschenbusch, you can hear in that name, right, had a, had a, had a historic kind of connection to European Christianity. And um, so these liberal ideas in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, this is what's called modernism. Um, the fundamentalists believed that liberal theology undermined um, certain key, central key, hence the word fundamentals, fundamental doctrines. So what would these fundamental doctrines be? Well, uh, they, the, the, the name came to be just a, the name came to be used in part because of a very large publication project that was undertaken called "The Fundamentals." And this was a series of pamphlets and books that were uh, produced by uh, some very wealthy people who wanted this literature then provided to uh, ministers and seminarians uh, in seminaries throughout the country. Um, and they were called the fundamentalists. And they, they would include things like, this isn't all of them, um, things like the inspiration and the authority of the Bible. The there was a stress on the deity of Christ. 
there wasn't a denial of the humanity, but the real emphasis was on the deity of Christ. Why? Because in liberal theology, the emphasis was clearly on the humanity of Christ. So there's no question that fundamentalism doesn't have a corner on this market, but was shaped by a reaction against liberalism, liberal theology. So the authority of scripture, the person of Christ, the sinfulness of human beings. So contrary to the idea of progress. And of course, one of the things that made liberal theology difficult to hold as they moved into the middle part of the 20th century was things, little things like World War I. And World War I made it very difficult, was very challenging to some of the basic, you could say, progressive or optimistic, more optimistic tenets of modernist thought. So, so speaking of, of the war, and uh, it's, are we okay if I digress here a bit? So from what I understand that uh, before the war, there was more of a the eschatology, uh, which, you know, the, the end times, right? So the, the post-millennial view that, Right. We got to do a lot of good work, and Christianity has to be the base and the foundation in order for Christ to come back. Mm-hmm. But then, after World War One and World War Two, clearly people shifted from post-millennial. That's mm-hmm. not popular anymore within evangelicals to more of a pre-millennial view. Is that right? right. That that is true. Yes, yes. And there, there's no. I mean, a, a more general observation that uh, contemporary circumstances are often reflected in particular eschatological end times views. So I remember uh, when I was in high school uh, was when there was um, there were some very severe dictatorships in Central Africa that were killing people uh, rampantly. And I remember my youth director saying, um, you know, we, we were talking about if you will, end times things. That's how it was talked about then. And he said, uh, well, we can, we can talk about um, coming persecution, but you'd have a very hard time convincing the Christians in Uganda that they weren't already in that era of persecution, right? So to some extent, the this, we're ranging beyond evangelicalism at this point, I acknowledge. But I'll, I'll just say, to some extent, um, there are people who will say that being kind of flippant and, well, who cares about the future? Nobody knows what's going to happen when. That that's kind of a luxury of peaceful, comfortable life circumstances. That, that when people are living in in dire circumstances, the thought about what may or may not happen in the future is dear to them and very, very important. Maybe you'll address this question later, but you were talking about fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Right. And in my mind, even though I grew up fundamentalist, evangelicalism clearly rose to the top. What was it or who was it that made evangelicalism rise further and fundamentalism decline? Well, a uh, couple of things. Uh, fundamentalism is alive and well. Um, there, there are, uh, for most of us, myself included, actually, I, I don't, even though this, the kind of things we're talking about tonight are my professional arena, if you will, um, I, I don't very often find myself in 
conversation with or in the context of an organization that could truly be called fundamentalist. However, that said, um, fundamentalism is, is quite alive and well. Um, Bob Jones University and, and some people would see Liberty University um, as being at least in the orbit or on the edge of what can be called fundamentalism. Hillsdale College, even though it's unaffiliated, okay. definitely carries many of those same themes. Okay. I, I think as far as w- when you talk about rise, let me kind of interpret that as in terms of uh, a visible presence in the larger culture. In some ways, it's quite simple. Uh, In this sense, fundamentalism has, as as I mentioned before, part of what makes fundamentalism fundamentalism is um, a commitment to being separated from, to withdraw from what is seen to be, in effect, the kingdom of darkness or the world. We'll use the Johannine notion of the world. Um, so they withdraw. So fundamentalists generally, if you will, in a sense, keep to themselves. Um, they have their own schools, their own institutions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Evangelicals do as well, have their own schools, publishing houses, etc. However, that the posture of evangelicalism, and you asked about names, so probably the Two of the people most influential, Carl F.H. Henry and uh, Billy Graham. So Henry, in his case, was, if you will, an intellectual. Ph.D. in philosophy, Ph.D. in theology, um, and he was, he was one of the flag bearers for the following kind of dimension of post-World War II evangelicalism, and that is that we're not going to retreat from the academic arena, from the intellectual arena. And so you have a whole generation of people like Henry, uh, Kenneth Conser, my, my first professor of theology, um, Vernon Grounds uh, of, of Denver Seminary, many, many others, E.J. Carnell. I mean, there's a long list. What these people did was uh, they said, well, we need to go to the major universities and earn our credential, in a sense, so that, first of all, we want to show we want to be part, we want to be at the table. We want to be part of the conversation. And um, I'm sure there was also a certain element of we need credentials so that maybe somebody will listen to us. Right, so you had this whole generation of of early post-war evangelicals going to German universities, going to Ivy League universities, going to the University of Chicago, prestigious schools in the realm of particularly theological studies, and getting that that credential. Then you have Graham, and he really, uh, as a ministry posture, um, took a posture that was very much at odds with fundamentalism. So that, for example, he would have, he would work with Roman Catholics. He would have Roman Catholics on the platform of his crusades, as they were called. Um, He would, when he would come into a city and hold a rally, there would be Catholics 
Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists. Um, it really was a a trans one of the words trans denominational kind of phenomenon, and 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 of course then you have what's often cited as the most symbolic expression of that visibility is, as it said, you know, he was personal friends of every president from Truman to Obama. They all had him to the Oval Office, they all, or to their home. Um, and and so if, as far as people, and I think in the case of Henry, you've got a representation of that, that impulse to, to come out of this isolation particularly in, you could say, the intellectual academic realm, and in the case of Graham, more visibly in, for lack of a better word, popular culture in, in media, uh, etc. Just a side note, growing up, I was not allowed to listen to Billy Graham on TV because he was obviously not a Christian and probably part of the Antichrist system. Yeah. That, now, there, there is, I don't want to stereotype, but I would just say that would be fundamentalism at I think work. it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, can you also speak to the rise of the parachurch movement during this time? Because clearly, sure. that that uh, took on a whole new yes, um, like it's, it's a, almost like a mega church movement you, yeah, in its you, own way. You uh, you cannot understand evangelicalism without being aware of what's called parachurch movements or organizations, um, and and this is by the way. Um, one of the points where evangelicalism is quite different from many other streams of Christianity. Um, because if you think about this word, para-church, um, kind of alongside the church, well, to talk about Christian ministry alongside the church rather than Christian ministry of the church or through the church or by the church, to, to talk in that way would be utterly, really, in many ways, theologically incomprehensible within Eastern Orthodoxy, within Roman Catholicism, and within many streams of Protestantism, classical Anglicanism, Lutheranism, uh, many streams of Presbyterianism, they would have very difficult time conceiving of ministry, if you will, that wasn't somehow a work of the church in an identify in an institutionally identifiable way. Evangelical Christianity, one of its frankly uh, gifts and one of its great weaknesses, is to paraphrase a theologian, the church rests very lightly on evangelicalism and evangelicals. And many people within evangelicalism, um, I would be among those who I, I see the gift of parachurch ministries, and I'm also very mindful of the relatively low view of the church that can unintentionally be cultivated in evangelicalism. And the part of the reason that's significant is that a vision of Christianity with a strong view of church is a vision of Christianity that, that presses back against individualism. And 
one again, one of the strengths and one of the challenges within evangelicalism is this strong sense of individualism. And it really revolves around that phrase, having a personal relationship with Jesus. And um, I'm a great believer in the importance of having a personal relationship with Jesus. H- however, <laughs> at its best, that is not to be taken as saying that somehow I don't need the church or the church is kind of optional. The church is a resource to help me in my individual life rather than, and what I'm going to say now is increasingly being recognized within evangelical circles, instead of a vision that says, as a follower of Christ, I need to take my life into something bigger than me. It's not about the church meeting all my needs. It's about me participating in the life of the church, participating in the body of Christ as Christ's bride, as Christ's chosen instrument for his work in the world. So I, I realize I've ranged across a number of topics, but I'll just say that the, the, the parachurch movement is very significant within evangelical movement, and tremendous work has been and is being done. One of the potential weaknesses, if it's not properly calibrated, is that there can be an a, a cultivation of a vision of Christianity that is where the church is marginal at best. And I'll just say there's uh, there's a kind of a, a resurgence, you could say, within m- certain strains of evangelicalism that are really trying to, in a sense, correct that and reclaim a vision of a churchly Christianity rather than a highly individualistic Christianity. Yeah, and that's obviously to to be to put the blame on Western culture, right? I mean, that's that's kind of who we become, not just within the church, but in you name the the arena, and we could all come up with examples. So, to kind of to break this down, so and what I've come to see is like the basics of evangelicalism that kind of came to fruition in middle late twentieth century are are these three things. So, to saturate society with an evangelical witness, so this good news witness of, of Jesus to Christ, to further scholarship in the disciplines of biblical study, theology, and history, and well, that could go on to other arenas as well. And then this last one is to promote unity on the basics of essentials, and yet granting liberty in non-essentials. Mm. And you hear mm. that a lot. Mm. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that before, too. It's yeah. Wesley. It's what? It's Wesley. There you go. John, that's, of course you've heard it. We have two ex-Nazarenes in the house. <laughs> So can, can you elaborate a little bit more on, well, let, let's take these one at a time. So to, you can w- use the word saturate. You could use any word you want. It's the word I picked. Society with an evangelical witness. That is, um, we are bringing this good news. We think it's good. Um, and, and that good news would be that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yes. Okay. And, and so one of the markers, so when historians and sociologists uh, attempt to describe this thing called evangelicalism, in almost every academic description, there's, it includes some element of, uh, to put it negatively, not keeping this to yourself, but in fact, uh, sharing the good news. That's the most, again, one of the more, more common ways to express it. And of course, what, what has 
what's currently uh, going on in, in, our, in our cultural context is that sometimes this idea of sharing the good news, trying to, uh, some would say, expand the kingdom of God, <clears throat> takes the form of either attempting to or appearing to attempt to want to, if you will, take over control of the culture. So I know that there are people outside of evangelicalism who view evangelicals as people who want to, quote, take over the country, who want to, quote, dictate morals to everyone else. Um, So I'm not uh, naive about that perception. And I can I can point to, you know, probably the kind of things that have caused that perception. So I, I would say on that point, uh, as I mentioned several times last week, are there evangelicals who do approach um, American society uh, with a posture of wanting to quote reclaim America for God? Yes. Is that inherent to evangelicalism? No. Do all evangelicals have that posture? No. Um, But all evangelicals, if they're really true to the evangelical expression of Christianity, will not, if you will, relegate or keep their beliefs isolated to a private, behind-closed-doors-only environment. So the tension becomes, um, this isn't just about me. It's not just my beliefs for myself that I keep to myself. Um, There's the belief that, they would say, following the example of Jesus, who, yes, there was a rhythm to his life. He retreated. He went off by himself. From time to time, he would say to someone who he's just healed, don't tell anybody about me. And on the other hand, he would often go out of his way to, in fact, encounter large groups of people, and he would engage them. So um, I I think that, number one, there's some evangelicals who, in a sense, don't calibrate this properly. And number two, in our current cultural context, even when somebody is simply speaking what they think is good for human beings... um, because the air is so poisoned these days, there can be people who say that, and it tra- it's translated into they're trying to impose their morality on us. They're trying to take over the country, right? So there, as in, so this is not unique to this topic. I mean, we're in a very polarized, rhetorically charged, um, social political climate, and evangelicalism isn't immune, if you will, or isolated from that charged climate. Uh, can I jump in there and by all means talk about kind of turn it around and talk about how, um, evangelicals talk about how they're persecuted, Mm. you know, they're persecuted because they can't say Merry Christmas. Um, you know, all of these things are persecuted because people call them bigots. Um, yet from my viewpoint, Christians are, evangelicals in particular are very privileged part of the society. We got our holidays off. You know, we never have to go, you know, Jewish, Muslim, they don't get any of their holidays off. Um, 
I just I just can't yep. understand that as an yep. outsider now. Right. right. How evangelicals are being persecuted. Right. Um it's a very legitimate question, as I hope you'll hear in, in the way I respond. Um, first of all, that kind of talk reflects, I think, a perception of what I'm going to call a trajectory. And what I mean by that is, if we look at certain kinds of moral standards and understandings, over the course of the last 50 to 70 years, I don't think anybody would deny that American culture has changed profoundly in its social mores and its ethical mores. And whether you think that's good or bad is a, is a different, I mean, it's related, but my, that's not my reason for pointing it now. I'm being descriptive, not evaluative. Um, there just can't be any doubt that many, many fundamental moral principles and that were, whether on the surface or underneath, more or less shared in large sectors of American society, no longer are. That, so that's what I mean by trajectory. That's kind of the movement, appears to be the movement of the culture. And I think there are many people, not just evangelicals, who are concerned about that. And of course, there are other people who are celebrating these changes. And I reckon so, but Number one, there's, there's profound change that has unfolded and is unfolding. And I think for many people who are, who are concerned about those things, um, they, they see that pace of change, the direction of change, uh, actually accelerating, right? And many people, just by temperament, human beings, can be, find that very unsettling and threatening, mm -hmm. okay? That said, and this next point is very important, and I'm, I'm quote, glad, unquote, that you raised the word persecution. Um, I will tell you that among the people that I associate with, um, we, we actually, among ourselves, reject that terminology and find it really irresponsible at best. Um, I have to link it to this trajectory business. Do I think that if the tr current trajectory were to continue several decades out, we could find ourselves in a position where Christians, not just evangelicals, but anybody who's Christian could be in some sense persecuted? I, I, I've, I know too much of history to make a pronouncement that that will never happen. So there, there is that wonderment about where we're headed. However, however, um, I, I think it's utterly irresponsible for anybody in this country presently to self-describe or to describe their group, in the case of evangelicals, as, as facing persecution. Uh, there is persecution of Christians in the world, but it's literal persecution. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for addressing that. So just going down that road a little farther, would you be comfortable maybe, um, are there certain groups that might be under the evangelical tent that treat language that way more regularly than others? I'm, I guess 
behind that, I know that there's kind of the charismatic Pentecostal stream mm, and mm. there's the holiness stream and mm. there's the reform stream, which mm. has had some really inflammatory people yep. as part of its um, vocalness lately. Right. So right. I guess, I don't know, would you be willing to kind of name some of those things? I don't want to get you in trouble. Na- just to clarify, I'm not, I'm not retreating. I'm just, so when you say name some of those things, what, um, what is it that you're most interested in? I guess in, in the context of her question, do okay. you see one of these streams that is being uh, more, more irresponsible with this or not? Or is there something else behind that? Yeah. I, I, at least on first thought, I, I don't, I don't, uh, see any of the what I would call the traditional streams of Protestantism, Lutheran, Anabaptist, Reformed, Pentecostal, on, on down the list. I, I don't associate this claim of persecution with any one of those traditions more than another because I think that what's motivating the use of that language, which again, I, I don't think is proper. I, I just don't think it's accurate. It, 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 um, are people who are particular, their particular concern is the state of American society, American culture and society and politics. And whether they're Lutheran or Baptist or Methodist, they're looking at that and it is their concern over that that leads them to, wrongly in my opinion, use that language. I, I don't know if that responds yeah, that to it. Yeah, I don't, on that particular issue, I don't, in my right off hand, there's no particular, if you will, subgroup of evangelicals that I necessarily associate that with. <laughs>